It's time now for the complete story of public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now here's the BRN father and son team, Dick and Rich Bot, with today's complete story. So many people called our listener comment line and they wanted us to repeat Dr. Lawrence White's sermon. And I want this program, I want this program to be aired to our audience in the spirit of what Doris Akers recorded many years ago before she went home to be with the Lord. But listen to this, folks, and then we'll get into the program. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. And I know that it's the Spirit of the Lord. There are sweet expressions on each face. of the Lord Sweet Holy Spirit
Oh, um, oh man, Rich, uh, wasn't that moving? Wasn't yeah, that moving? It really was. Did you hear in there where she said, feel it, feel yeah. it? Oh, yeah. yeah. See, she was a choir director. Feel Doris the music. Acres. Yeah, she said, feel it. Yeah. But you know what? Little Doris Akers, she could have been aborted. Yeah. She could have been aborted. But at that time, why there was a law in the United States, everybody knew that abortion is wrong. Mm -hmm. There are other ways to solve social problems. There are other ways to absolutely handle and build a family, build the strength of a family, build a sense of responsibility into a child growing up into an adult, so on and so forth. But she wasn't aborted because there was a law against it. Planned Parenthood hadn't even been thought of yet. No. So thank God for Doris Akers. And God had a purpose for her That's life. Right. Now, this is the, this is the message that our listeners wanted us to repeat so badly, and I'm glad to do it today. Dr. Reverend, let's see, Reverend Dr. Lawrence White, mm -hmm. our Savior Lutheran Church in Houston. However, when I heard this message, I thought, oh man, I want our whole radio audience to hear it. So we, are, we arranged with Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary during the week for him to come to Kansas City and preach that message to the audience in their chapel. So we could yeah. have our microphones there and our engineer and really capture good audio so people could really hear it and take it to heart. And, you know, folks, that's all we're asking. Take it to heart and then ask yourself, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? What are you doing in your church? What are you doing with your witness and what God has given you to help somebody else? All right, here it is. I've been traveling across the length and breadth of this great land over the last few years, talking primarily to pastors' groups, seeking to awaken and arouse God's spokesmen among us to be what God has called them to be, to preach his word without apology, without hesitation, without reluctance. And that means that I've spent a considerable amount of time away from my family. And so I was very pleased this past January, end of last December, to have the opportunity to take my two sons, Adam, who's 23, and Aaron, who's 20, with me on a trip to Germany. As a Lutheran Christian, that's where my historic and theological roots are. And I wanted the boys to see where they came from and to get some context, I guess you could call it, a setting in which to evaluate and assess what's happening in our country and in their lives. And so we flew out of Houston on Christmas Day. We landed in Berlin on December the 26th. The end of December, the beginning of January is a wonderful time to go to Northern Germany because all the sane people have left Northern Germany. <laughs> The sun comes up at 10.30 in the morning and it goes down at 3.30 in the afternoon and in between it snows. <laughs> well, we got to Berlin and the boys were having a wonderful time doing what 20-year-old young men do in a great world-class city. I was looking at churches and they were looking at other things. Well, one afternoon we rented a van and we drove out into the countryside about 35 kilometers or so northeast of Berlin to a little farming community called Oranienberg. Not much there, a couple of taverns, a couple of gas stations, a few houses. That's about it. Nobody would ever have heard of that little town 
were it not for the fact that Heinrich Himmler chose Oranienberg as the site of one of his prototype concentration camps, a horrible place called Sachsenhausen. That means the home of the Saxons. I took the boys there that day because I wanted them to see what had happened to this great Christian nation, this homeland of the Reformation, almost overnight. And the boys grew quiet as we walked across the vast expanse where the barracks once stood that held hundreds of thousands of prisoners during the 12 years of the Hitler Reich. We saw the bales of human hair and the piles of children's shoes. We went to the medical laboratories where gruesome experiments were conducted on living human beings without anesthetic because they were not viewed as human because of their race or their language. And finally we walked to the back where far in the corner the crematorium once stood. The oven where they burned the bodies of the dead. And out in front of it was a grotesque wrought iron statue of two emaciated inmates hauling the dead body of one of their cohorts toward the gaping doors of the oven. The building itself had actually collapsed. They'd buried so many people underneath it that the foundations had been undermined. But the metal supports that once held those ovens were still there. And as we came up there, three days after Christmas, in front of the doorway to that crematorium, there was a withered Christmas wreath with a white ribbon on it. And the slogan on that ribbon said, from the Christians of Germany, we kneel before God in bitter regret and humble repentance, and we ask his forgiveness for the Jews and all the others who died in this place. And as we turned to walk away, out across the compound once again, my 20-year-old Aaron put his arm around me in the condescending way that sons have with their fathers. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, you need to keep giving those speeches that you've been giving. And I felt good. Because for the first time, my boys understood within the depths of their hearts what's happening in America today. Now, those boys have always been pro-life. They've never had any choice in the matter. <laughs> but there in Sachsenhausen, for the very first time, they saw for themselves how much is at stake in our America and how desperately important these issues are and how much we stand to lose if we do not awaken and rouse ourselves quickly. The Christians of Germany learned only too late that the people of God in Christ cannot disengage from the culture in which they live. We cannot withdraw to the comfortable security of our beautiful sanctuaries and sit in our padded pews while the world all around us goes to hell. For to do so is a betrayal of the Lord whose name we bear. And it is a denial of the power and the efficacy of his word, the word that he has given us to proclaim.
in Germany, as here in the United States. One of the most clever tools in the enemy's arsenal used to silence and intimidate Christians, to drive them out of the public square, was the lie of the separation of church and state. There was a meeting held in the German capital city of Berlin in 1934. Hitler had been chancellor for just over a year at that point. He was taking the nation through a process which in German was called Gleichschaltung, that means coordination. Everything was being realigned in terms of national socialist philosophy, and that included the churches. And protests had begun to rise from the people of God about this interference in the church and its life. And so Hitler called together the most important preachers in the land, and he gathered them there at the Reichschancellery to reassure them and to intimidate them, if he could, to silence their criticism so that he could go on with his plans for the country. And Hitler moved through the crowd that day, patting the preachers on the back, making them feel important, smiling and reassuring. He told them their state subsidies would continue, their tax exemptions were secure, that the church had nothing to fear from a Nazi government. And finally, one brash young preacher who was there, Martin Niemöller was his name, had had enough. Today we'd call him politically incorrect. He was going to tell the truth, even if that truth was not popular. And he pushed his way to the front of the room until he stood eye to eye with the German dictator. And he said, Herr Hitler, our concern is not for the church. Jesus Christ will take care of his church. Our concern is for the soul of our nation. It was immediately evident that the brash young preacher spoke only for himself as a chagrin silence fell over that room and his colleagues hustled him away from the front. Hitler, with a natural politician's instinct, saw that reaction, and he understood exactly what it meant, and he smiled as he said to himself almost reflectively, the soul of Germany, you can leave that to me. And they did. They kept their religion and their politics strictly separate from one another. And as the innocent were slaughtered and the nation was led down the path to destruction, they looked the other way and they minded their own business. And their country was destroyed. I would submit to you today that we in America find ourselves in a frighteningly similar predicament. Once again, the innocent are being slaughtered in a 26-year holocaust that makes Hitler look like a humanitarian by comparison. Once again, the nation is being led down the path to destruction. And once again, by and large, God's people are looking the other way. I don't have to tell anyone in this room tonight how far down that path to destruction we've already traveled. You see the evidence in families that are fractured and marriages that are broken, in young people that lose their way and often their lives in a maze of alcohol and drugs in a culture that can no longer distinguish between lust and love, that is willing to tolerate the vilest perversion as alternate acceptable lifestyle while pestilence stalks the land, in public schools that have become facilitators for fornication and procurers for the abortionist knife, 
in a nation that has lost the moral will to distinguish between that which is right and that which is wrong. We know all too well how far down that road to destruction we have already gone. And that's because in large part every time a Christian, particularly a Christian pastor, raises his voice on a matter of public policy, the immediate hue and cry from the media, from the political and educational elite and establishment is, wait a minute, we have the separation of church and state in this country. You Christians, you keep your morality to yourselves. As history repeats itself, they smile reassuringly as they tell us the soul of America. You can leave that to us. And we have. Brothers and sisters, the time has come and is long since past when we stopped listening to and being immobilized by these lies from the father of lies. This is the genius of America. The recognition that a country like ours, a country where the people rule, must be a country where morality prevails. But that's not the kind of country that we have seen developing all around us every day. That's not the kind of country we read about when we pick up the newspapers every morning. America has forgotten who she is. And if she does not remember soon, it will be too late. In the 1830s, a French nobleman named Alexis de Tocqueville came from Europe to this new land to see what it was that gave America its vitality and its strength. And he toured across this country. He saw all that there was to see. And when it was done, he summed it up. In these impassioned words, he said, I sought the key to the greatness and the genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields, in her boundless forests, in her rich mines, in her vast world commerce, in her public school system and institutions of learning. I sought for it in her democratic Congress and in her matchless constitution, but it was not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness that I understood the secret of her genius and her power. America is great, de Tocqueville said, because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, then she will also cease to be great. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is an offense to any people. There is that indissoluble connection between greatness and goodness upon which this country was built. We have severed that connection over the last few decades. We have sown the wind of immorality and we are reaping the whirlwind of destruction and death. And we, God's people in Christ, have been placed here by the Lord for such a time as this. America will not turn from the path of destruction until the Christians of this land stop blending in and going along. 
We have become a chameleon church. We can blend in anywhere. We can go along with anything, no matter how perverse it may be. Just so long as no one figures out that we are sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. For then we might have to endure the scorn and the ridicule of the world. We must stop compromising and yielding. We must start standing and in confessing. But as we do so, we must be sure that it is the Lord Jesus for whom we stand. We cannot allow ourselves, our churches, to be used and abused by politicians, by political parties. God is not the mascot of the Republican Party. God is not a Democrat. God is not even an American, which may come as something of a shock. <laughs> but of this one thing, we can be absolutely certain. The Lord God Almighty hates the murder of innocent unborn children. We can win the next election or the next 10 elections. We can balance the budget. We can reduce the deficit. We can bring down taxes and build the mightiest military machine on the face of the earth. But if we do not stop abortion, then God will destroy and God should destroy America. Abortion is an unholy altar that we have raised up to pagan gods of our own lust and greed. And the blood of more than 35 million innocent unborn children cries out to God for justice from the ground of America. And the day is coming soon when God will heed that cry. And when he does, woe to us and woe to America. On that great day of reckoning, it will not be enough to say, Lord, we were in church every Sunday. We built great churches in your name. We established great programs in your name. We raised millions of dollars in your name. On that great day of reckoning to those who stood silent while the killing went on, the Lord will say, depart from me, you cursed ones, for I do not know you. But in the amazing grace, the incredible mercy and long-suffering of our wonderful God, that day has not yet come. America may have turned her back on God, but God, for some reason, has not yet turned his back on America. So let us work while it is still day, before the night comes, when no man can work. Let us rouse the Christians of this city and of this land to be what God has called and enabled them to be, the stinging salt that stops the decay of death. The shining light that dispels the darkness of doubt and despair. The gleaming city set high upon a hill that stands as a beacon light of life and hope to this nation and to every nation. Let us learn from the mistakes of the past. Let us stand upon the word of God. Let us save this country that we claim to love as we become involved in the process in this crucial moment that God has given us. God is placing before us a challenge before it is too late. 
And I pray that we will find within the depths of our hearts and souls the courage and the faith and the conviction to rise to that challenge and make the most of that opportunity. It is within our power because God has placed it there. It is within our grasp to change this America before it is too late, to snatch our country back from the brink of destruction. All the signs of the deadly decay all around us are unmistakably clear. Our nation's leaders wallow in decadence and deceit, while the polls tell us that the people don't care, and apathy and indifference prevails. We must care as the people of God in Christ. We must be the salt and the light and the shining city. As Christians gathered here today, let us resolve not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Let us resolve not to allow evil men to triumph simply because good men have done nothing. Let us stand together as the people of God, bold in the confidence of the Spirit, and declare before our nation the soul of America. You can leave that to us. Thank you. Oh, man, Rich, does that just pierce your heart? What a powerful message to those young seminarians. It doesn't invite an argument, folks. That's not the point. Examine your own heart. You've got a Bible. Read it about the Lord Jesus in the womb of his mother and that whole story. And then examine the science, for heaven's sake. At the moment of conception, the human being then does exist. Do you care? That's the only question. Ask yourself, do I care? It's not my business. I've got my kids. Or I think this, I think that, I think the other thing. I don't have to stop and question, do I care about another innocent human being? And if you care, then what are you doing about it? You may want to volunteer some time at the local Pregnancy Resource Center. Rich, what is our listener comment line? Our listener comment line, 1-800-345-2621. And we'd love to hear from you folks. This is Dick and Rich Bott with the privilege and the pleasure of talking to our audience uh, with a complete story. We'll see you later. 